So today is um, number five in our series on the teachings of Jesus. We've been looking at his Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew's chapter five to Matthew chapters five to seven. Um, this is number five, which means we have two more to go. I thought seven, good biblical number to do the series on, and so. You know, just as a recap, in the first um, session, we talked about how God wants us to have that spirit of humility and vulnerability and openness to God and others, being poor in spirit. And then we talked about that challenging but very important teaching of loving our enemies. And then we looked at how Jesus taught us to pray and examples of how how um, prayer works and what prayer is and, and what it isn't. Um, and the powerful stories of prayer that God has given to us in our own lives even. And then last time we looked at how Jesus taught us to seek God and his kingdom first, to make God the priority in our lives rather than money or success or or other things that we often are anxious about. And so today we come, (laughs) excuse me, to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Jesus taught, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck. From your brother's eye. Now you might have heard this passage before or parts of it. Oftentimes, unfortunately, it's been used to defend ourselves like, hey, the Bible says not to judge. Don't judge me, right? Or we might have used it to hate on the haters. I, oh, I can't believe they're judging. Don't they know that you're not supposed to judge? We love judging people and criticizing and condemning. Not, not that we love it, but it just it's so easy to get caught up in that. Um, especially because, you know, the unmerciful attitude is so prevalent in our society. And unfortunately, um, sadly, Christians can often be um, extra judgmental towards other Christians. Um, we're sometimes more understanding of non-believers than we are to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is exactly what Jesus is calling out in this passage. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eyes? And he's talking to the believers here. He, you know, He's already talked about loving our enemies, but here he's talking about the interpersonal relationship we have with one another. And he really points out how we have this complete lack of self-awareness, right? This lack of discernment. So we don't realize that we have this attitude of superiority, so much pride and so little empathy where we criticize or condemn others, especially other Christians who disagree, we disagree with. And the moment we do this, we are pushing love out of that relationship. Our vision is flawed. Our assumptions are unfounded, but we still try to point out and, and fix the errors of others while we have a ginormous log or plank in our eyes. And of course, Jesus is exaggerating here. Um, it's not it's not realistic to have a log in your eye, but he's exaggerating to make this point that we see a speck in someone else's eye, but we have much bigger issues than that. 
And imagine a blind optometrist trying to remove remove a speck in your eye when when they can't see a thing when their vision is flawed, right? The amount of pain that would cause that's not going to end well. So much damage has been done in the name of of righteous righteous indignation that's actually self righteous indignation. And this is what happened two thousand years ago in the streets of Jerusalem. Every year, the Jews would gather together in Jerusalem at least three times a year for the Feast of Tabernacles, for the Feast of Passover, and for Pentecost. So, when you are a follower of of God, you're a Jew.、Um, no matter where you were in the world, no matter how far you had moved away, you would come to Jerusalem to come to the temple for these special holy days. Now, the Feast of Tabernacle was a one week long. Time a memorial of of God's leading in their past and in their present and in their future, the time of Thanksgiving and worship, and so all these people had gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, this was a time when the Jewish leaders, the religious and political leaders, really wanted to have the spotlight shine on them. Right here is an opportunity for all kinds of people who have gathered together to see them, but instead. What was happening is that Jesus was there in the temple teaching, and crowds of of people were coming and and listening to him. And every day that crowd would grow because here was Jesus sharing words that gave them hope, and that gave them comfort and 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 provided healing. And so every day this crowd was growing, and every day the leaders were getting more and more frustrated and jealous and upset. Who who was this carpenter from Nazareth? You know how dare he, right? He hadn't gone to their rabbinic schools. He didn't have their permission or the right credentials, and here he was teaching with authority. They tried to stop him. They tried to arrest him. But each time their plans got foiled. Each time they would send someone to arrest Jesus. But as as the soldiers or or you know、um, the servants got to Jesus and they. Heard Jesus' words, and they saw his his face, and they listened, and the Holy Spirit would convict them, and they couldn't arrest him, and they would come back. So the leaders were very frustrated by the end of this week, and so finally they concoct this plan to entrap him. To entrap him. So on the last day of the feast, early in the morning, right when Jesus is teaching, these leaders drag a terrified, half-naked woman through the streets of Jerusalem, and we pick up the story here. In John chapter eight, it says that Jesus had appeared in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, "Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say?" And they were using this question as a trap. In order to have a basis for accusing him, they thought if Jesus says yes, go ahead and stone her, then they could accuse Jesus of breaking Roman law because only under the Roman authority could the death penalty be、um, given. On the other hand, if Jesus says no, don't stone her, then they can accuse Jesus of breaking God's laws and make him lose credibility in front of his hearers. So they thought this is the perfect plan to trap Jesus. They had absolutely no concern for this poor woman, who's trembling in the middle of the crowd, who is ready to stone her. She's just a pawn in their political agenda. 
How did Jesus respond to this situation? If you read on, it says in John chapter 8, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this woman bracing for impact, closing her eyes, waiting for that stone to hit her? But there's silence. And she looks and she sees Jesus writing something on the ground with his finger. Now, we don't know exactly what it was because the scripture doesn't say, but whatever it was made the accusers realize that they were not innocent. You see, Jesus knew their hearts, that not only were they trying to trap him because of their jealousy, but they had also trapped this woman. Because in in order for, um, you know, they're, they're talking about the law of God through Moses, but actually, if you look at God's laws given through Moses, it was very clear that whenever an accusation was made, there had to be two in, at least two independent witnesses. That's found in Deuteronomy. And so what are the chances that two strangers happened to witness this very private act that was happening indoors? Right? Very suspicious circumstances. Also, it takes two to commit adultery, and God's laws also was very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 22 that you had to bring both the man and the woman before the court. But here they just brought the woman, and there's no witnesses, there's no proper trial or testimony here. So most likely, the Pharisees and the lawyers had colluded together um, with the man in order to manipulate and use this woman. And if that's the case, then they are way more guilty. They, they are, they're guilty of multiple sins. But here they were, giddy with their self-righteousness, right? And Jesus writes on the ground, and so they're, they're, they're getting impatient. They want, they want Jesus to give the verdict so they can pounce upon him. And as, he's, as they're pressing closer to saying, come on, Jesus, tell us the answer. What do you, what do you think we should do this, with this woman? And then Jesus finished his writing. And I, can, I imagine them kind of looking to see what, what he's writing on there. And all of a sudden they're terrified. Because they realize that Jesus can expose their sins and make their their private sins public? What if Jesus reveals their part in this sordid affair? They couldn't risk their reputation being ruined and their sins being exposed. And so when Jesus says, let any of you who is without sin cast the first stone, they don't have time to lift up the stone and, and, and dare do something that's going to put them in danger. And so they start going away one by one. John chapter 8, verses 9 to 11 says, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Whenever I'm confused um, or about theology or about my life or just in general, right? Whenever there's any doubt in my mind, John chapter 8 and Romans chapter 8 are anchor points for me of who God is and how he treats sinners. And 
when you look at this passage in this story, you see that Jesus does something incredible. Not only does he make all of the woman's accusers go away, but when he himself actually had the right to condemn, because he said he who is without sin cast the first stone, and Jesus was the only one who qualified for that. He was the only one without sin, and he could have condemned her, but he chose not to. He says, I don't condemn you either, right? I'm not here to condemn, but to save. And so then he says, go and sin no more, and frees her to a new life, a second chance, a fresh beginning. I love the fact that Jesus separates the woman from the crowd so that he can minister to her in this way and and provides for her this um, safe space to be able to experience this freedom. One of my favorite authors, the inspired writer Ellen White, says this about this scene and this story. She writes, The world had for this erring woman only contempt and scorn, but Jesus speaks words of comfort and hope. The sinless one pities the weakness of the sinner and reaches to her a helping hand. While the hypocritical Pharisees denounce, Jesus bids her, Go and sin no more. Those who are forward in accusing others and zealous in bringing them to justice are often in their own lives more guilty than they. Men hate the sinner while they love the sin. Christ hates the sin but loves the sinner. This will be the spirit of all who follow him. Christian love is slow to censure, quick to discern penitence, ready to forgive, to encourage, to set the wanderer in the paths of holiness, and to stay his feet therein. Isn't that the truth? That we love sin, right? We cling to our own sins. We don't want to let them go, but we hate on the sinner. But God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. And he calls us, his followers, to to do the same. But how do we do that, right? How do we go from being someone who condemns and criticizes and alienates people to one who um, understands and sympathizes, frees and ministers to them? Well, first, we have to spend time in the Word to realize that our vision is obstructed. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You see, in order for us to judge rightly, to discern correctly our true condition and the true condition of others, we really need the Word of God to judge us, right? The Word of God through the Holy Spirit cuts that layer of hypocrisy that we have. It, it cuts that layer of, of um, you know, pretense that we have. And it cuts through the layer of um, our pride and, and, it, and it shows us for who we really are. You know, I've been doing the daily nuggets through the book of James and in James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, it talks about how the word of God is like a mirror, right? That it shows us our true condition. If we don't look at the mirror, we don't know if our hair is messed up, if we have food in our teeth, if our outfit matches. And in the same way, if we don't, if we neglect that time in the Word of God, we have this, we walk around with this false image of ourselves as better than we actually are. And we, 
we judge everyone else with our inflated ego. We really need to look at the Word of God, to, to study it, to explore it, to meditate upon it, in order for the Spirit to convict us of the truth about ourselves, even if it hurts. And once we've seen that plank in our eyes, we need Jesus to remove it. We need to confess to Him in prayer that we were wrong to judge, that our vision is flawed, that we can't see the whole picture. We don't know the whole story. We don't know everything about that person or that situation. And that our issues are bigger than the speck in their eyes. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 and 4 say this, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You see, when we realize that God doesn't treat us as we deserve, but provides incredible mercy and kindness, it leads us to repentance. Remember that woman surrounded by the crowd who were ready to stone her? It was when she was alone with Jesus that finally there was no condemnation. So many times we are motivated by, by the fear of what others might say or think about us. Right? I'm guilty of that too. I'm a people pleaser. I want people to like me. But Jesus says, hey, he separates the crowd and says, hey, focus on me. And guess what? I don't condemn you, he says. Jesus showed kindness to this woman. And it was at that point of letting her know that she's not condemned, that she's forgiven, that um, she's able to now go and live a, live a life um, differently, making different choices. We need to be alone with Jesus in order to grasp the reality of what he offers, freedom and forgiveness. And it's from that place of receiving mercy that we can then give mercy. And, you know, there's a difference between judging from that place of pride and contempt and condemnation to having moved, seeing our true conditions, having confessed and having now eyes to see clearly being able to then discern when someone is making a choice that is going to lead to pain, of being able to then lovingly uh, approach them. And that's what Jesus says, that once you have taken the plank out of your eye, then yeah, you can help take the speck out of someone else's eye. And so sometimes we, we swing the opposite way. We're like, oh, we don't want to judge at all, and so I'll just say nothing, I'll do nothing. But no, Jesus says, no, love compels us to do something, but how we do that is very, very important. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. You see, there is an appropriate restorative process. Once we've had the Holy Spirit examine our hearts 
and we have responded to that grace, we can gently, carefully, right, and humbly restore someone to Christ and to the community. But notice that it says to carry each other's burdens. We need to have walked a mile in their shoes and carried their burdens by coming alongside them in genuine care and empathy before we try to take the speck out of their eyes. And this is best done after we've built a relationship with that person. Um, Professor uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project described it this way. He says, truth requires a bridge, right? He says, a lot of times we load up a truckload of truth and we send it across a paper-thin bridge to a stranger and then we wonder why that person never accepted the truth. But he says, in order for us to to to, to um, provide truth or to send truth or to share truth with someone, right? You need to bring, build a stronger bridge, a stronger relational connection with that person. And sometimes the heavier the truth, the stronger that bridge needs to be. And that doesn't mean that strangers can't have impact on us or vice versa. But usually we listen to those we trust. And that takes time to develop. So if there's a loved one that you're concerned about because they're making choices that are going to lead them to suffering, after you've spent time in the word, in prayer, and after you've carried their burdens and walked alongside them in vulnerability, let them know about your concern. And if you do this the way that Jesus taught, then at the end of that, they might not take your advice, right? They might still choose to go down their path. But if you did it the way that Jesus taught, rather than feeling condemned, they'll know that you're coming from a place of love and concern. And that might just save them. And for those people who you don't have that kind of strong relationship with, first get to know them better, right? When you find yourself judging, when you find yourself assuming, stop and ask questions instead. Have you heard of the Human Library? The Human Library was started in Denmark in 2000 as an initiative where you can borrow a person instead of a book for a set time and ask them questions in order to find out about them, to, to read them. You know how you say, don't judge a book by its cover. And so the idea is that um, you, you have a conversation with them to challenge the stereotypes and prejudices through dialogue. And so, for example, you can reserve um, someone with ADHD, um, a Muslim, a homeless person, a refugee, and then for a set amount of time, you can ask questions. And this project is now in more than 80 countries. And I love this concept of unjudging someone, right? That's their tagline. Unjudge someone by getting to know them. And they have some recommended sample questions you can ask, like, can you tell me more about yourself? What experience has had the most impact on you and who you have become today? What were some of the most difficult moments of your life and what made it difficult? What are some of the good things in your life right now and what makes them good? What do you do to have fun? Is there a community or a support system that you're a part of? What's something that you receive from your parents, a characteristic or genetic trait, something that you like, that you want to keep and one that you wish you could change? What do you consider the most important quality the person needs to have? What's 
three, something about yourself that makes you unique? What are you passionate about? What are your dreams, right? So many questions we could ask to get to know someone, really know someone, and not just assume we know who they are and what they're about. What if we took the time to ask people questions and listen to them instead of judging them? Would we be surprised by some of their answers? Would we find something in common? Would we better understand their choices and their circumstances and their character? Would we realize that they too are made in the image of God, that they too are children of God, our brothers and sisters for whom Jesus died? Would it change our attitude and our assumptions towards that person? What if Christians were known not for being judgmental, but for being empathetic and understanding and kind? It all starts with us, with me and with you. Deciding every day to be transformed by God so that we can then be agents of change in our world. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 to 14 say this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. May God's kindness Lead us to repentance, renewal, and reconciliation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for the many times we have judged, where we have failed to give people the benefit of the doubt, where we have failed to treat them with respect and dignity as children of God. Help us, Father God, to see with your eyes to be able to humbly come before you and ask you to give us that eye operation, to, to give us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. And Father, I pray that as a result, the world would know by our love for each other that we are your disciples and that they would want to know you too as a result. We pray in your son's name. Amen.